We're in the midst of a series walking through the entire book of Genesis, noting that if you want to understand the New Testament, if you want to understand basic theology, you have to have an understanding of the book of Genesis, because it's not only the beginning of time, it's also the beginning of theology. All of the theology that the New Testament rests upon, and thus the better we know the Old Testament, the more we'll understand the New Testament, and the more we'll understand, appreciate, and love Jesus. And so we are in Genesis, and so far we've covered the creation, fall, flood, tower of Babel. We've wandered into the life of Abraham, but that's where we find ourselves this morning. God calls Abraham in Genesis 12 saying this, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord God did something extraordinary, and that's this. He called a total pagan idolater to himself. That is, God sought out someone who not only did not know him, he sought out someone who wasn't seeking him, and worse yet, he sought out somebody who wasn't who was worshiping false gods, and yet the one true God calls out to him and promises him, if you will follow me, I will do amazing things to bless you. If you'll follow me, I will bless you abundantly and make you a blessing to the whole world. And if you pay attention to theology, that's exactly what he's done for you and me. Amen? I'll be more passionate than that. Come on. There we go. As we've continued in the book of Genesis, we watch the Lord God keep his promise. We watch the Lord God reiterate his promise and even build on his promise such that last week, as we began chapter 18, the Lord God and two visitors come to see Abraham and Sarah. And again, he reiterates his promise saying that by this time next year, the 100-year-old Abraham and the 90-year-old Sarah would have a son. Why? Because God had promised it to them and God was going to keep their promise. And even though it required them to wait 25 years for him to fulfill it, God was a promise keeper. And he did it because he wanted them to know and to see that he was capable of absolutely anything. Literally, in the words of Genesis 18, 14, from the words of God, is anything too hard for the Lord? And so it was my prayer last week that we'd be challenged by his faithfulness to his promise to know that in any and in every situation he can move. And that we'd see that when he does move, it's always in accordance with his timing and his glory. It's the reminder that he is God and we are not. And ultimately that the book is about him and not about me. And even the world and this life is more about him than me. Something you and I often, huge emphasis on I, by the way, often get confused. It's about his timing and his glory. And we have to have that as our backdrop as we step into the rest of chapter 18, which is going to be a very thick and very difficult passage. So I've broken it up into four parts. So let me give you a little mini outline from the beginning. We'll see the four parts. The first of which is God visits. The second of which is Adam and Abraham intercedes. 
The third part is the angels confirm, and the fourth is God will bring judgment. We'll see all that this morning as we move quickly through this. I thought about breaking up into like eight weeks of sermons, but it seems tedious, and some of the sin you don't want me to go that deep on. It would have been real uncomfortable for all of us. So let's consider the first one. Listen carefully, Genesis 18, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now pause for a second. They're wandering down these three people, the Lord God, the two angels, and Abraham. When God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? That's an interesting statement because it tells us some things, right? God is going to do something. We can't miss that. And he's wanting to know, shall he have a conversation with Abraham about it? which obviously would have showed Abraham something. And he's going to take a moment to reaffirm his promises to Abraham before he shares this with him, an affirmation that we need. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So keep that in mind. God's about to decry judgment. And in the midst of that, he wants to reaffirm his promise. I've told you that I'll be merciful to you. I've told you that you have my grace. I've made my promise to you. And I'm going to tell you what's about to happen. Verse 20. And then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and Their sin is very grave. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Listen to me. It's imperative we get this before we move on. In the midst of God's mercy to Abraham, in the midst of God calling Abraham to himself, and God making promises to him and blessing him, you see this picture, God's gracious and merciful, and he's a righteous judge. It's not either or. It's both and. God will still judge those who are in sin, which is to say this. He doesn't just blindly promise and bless everyone. Take it a step further. God's not a universalist. God's not saying everyone belongs to me, all gods point to me, every religion points to the same God, do whatever you want, you'll all be fine. That is a far, far, far from what the Bible would testify to who God is and what he tells us. For according to the text, there's a tremendous outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. There are two ways you interpret that. One of them is that men have been declaring in prayer or otherwise. That place is evil, and God has heard it. The other way you see this is that the evil coming out from that city is so loud that it testifies to its evil nature. Either way you see it, the text says the omnipotent Lord God heard it, and he knew about it. He knew their sin was grave. And so in the midst of a conversation with Abraham, 
He wants Abraham to know that he's a, a fair God. He wants Abraham to know he's a merciful God. So he's come to confirm the evil. He wanted to show Abraham that he was a good and just God. So what we should see from this, especially as we keep working through the book of Genesis, is that God, who is merciful, is still a righteous judge. God, who is merciful, will still judge those who are in their sin. We saw that. God walked with Noah, and still he flooded the earth. He held men accountable. God calls Abraham, shows him his grace, and he still holds men accountable. And this brings us to our second point. Abraham's intercession. Verse 22. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous, away with the wicked? Abraham knows judgment's coming and he knows what it's going to look like. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And it's at least worth pointing out that what Abraham is doing here is he's not appealing to God to be merciful. He's appealing to God to be just. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham goes on, we've got to speed up a little. Abraham goes on to ask about the 45, to ask about the 40, to ask about 30, to ask about 20, and finally to ask about 10. And if you wonder why he wonders about 10, you've got to keep in mind that his nephew Lot and his wife and their daughters and their husbands are in that city. He had family there. He's worried about them and wondering what will happen. So the classic conversation that always comes up around this text is, is God changing the mind of God? So we got to point out some things from the text. First, God had already made up his mind. Verse 18, 17 tells us, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? God knew what he was about to do. Secondly, he still did it. So Abraham doesn't change God's mind. But what Abraham does do is Abraham confirms that God is a merciful God. He confirms that God is just. It was a teaching lesson to Abraham that he would understand. What it does is it shows that God is willing to show us, even in his judgments, that he is merciful. So it serves for us as a reminder that not only is our God a judge, but he's a merciful judge. And because he's a merciful judge, that ought to lead us to one place, right? That ought to make us better intercessors. Just as God here, as Abraham here, starts to appeal to God's justice, Friends, where we live and where we sit, we need to start appealing to God not only His justice, but His His mercy. We need to ask God to save the lost. Because this is on Abraham's law. He cared about these people. And he understood that literal judgment was coming, so that brought him into interceding on their behalf. 
John J. Davis wrote about this in his commentary in the book of Genesis. This is what he writes. It's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to pray effectively for lost souls if one is not convinced that lostness will ultimately result in literal eternal punishment. Now that's a statement. And it's a true one. What Dr. Davis is pointing out is what you find in the life of Abraham. Because he understood judgment was coming, it stirred him in his heart to seek after God over his friends, over his family. And friends, if we don't connect that in this world there will be a literal eternal judgment, then we're never going to care about the people surrounding us. We'll miss the fact that there are people around us who have a death sentence that we don't want to care about. We miss the fact that people are souls and they have an eternal destiny. So the Bible goes to long extents to remind us of God's judgment. Not that we live under condemnation, but that we would understand that there is a judgment and that from that place, we would work harder. <laughs> we would share more. We would love better. And we would beg for God's mercy. Friends, because judgment is real, not only must me become effective interceders, we must become effective evangelists. Sharing the gospel. That's the only way out of this. We've got to keep moving. The third part of this story is the angels confirming the evil of Sodom and Gomorrah. This begins kind of the hard part. Genesis 19, verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. You see in this passage, the angels have come to town. Lot is sitting at the gate. You should know this term means something. And what it tells us is that Lot, who, by the way, the New Testament confirms as a righteous man, is probably either the mayor or the judge of the town. For to sit at the gate tells you that he is of great importance in this city. Something to be said there. There's probably a message in there somewhere. But he meets with the angels. He greets them. This is what he says. My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. Lot tries to get them out of town quickly. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. By the way, this first time you see unleavened bread, the kind of bread you make without yeast because it takes, it's quicker to make. You don't have to let it rise. He's trying to hurry them along. Verse 4. Before they lay down, he's talking about the angels, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we might know them. Now, this is our first stop into an adult conversation. Look at verse 4. The men of the city, both young 
and old. All the people to the last man. That's an all-encompassing verse. It means literally and purposefully every single man in town showed up at Lot's house with one purpose. Bring out your guests that we might know them. That's an intentionally sexual word. It literally means that the entire crowd, the entire population of men, were seeking to rape the visitors. It's gruesome. It's vile. It's a reminder that in many places in our scriptures, it's well beyond rated R. We could try to sanitize things. We could try to make it easy. But make no mistake about it, evil is vile. It's detestable. It's awful. It ought to make us sick to our stomachs. Bring out your guests that we might know them. What the Lord God is doing in this text is he's illustrating evil. The fullness of what evil can look like. The story continues, verse 6. And Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, protecting his guests. He goes out. I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Second hard verse. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. Friends, I'd love to skip this section of Genesis. I'd love to pretend it wasn't here. But we don't get to make that decision. If you're going to teach the whole counsel of God's word, you teach the whole counsel of God's word. You get all of it. And what we're supposed to see here in this text is that these men were practicing homosexuality. That they were in up to their neck in sexual sin and it had become such the norm, such the normal part of their culture that everyone was now in on it and it was acceptable to outwardly practice it. Now there are people who want to argue that this passage does not talk about homosexuality as the reason that Sodom was judged. And they would be partly correct. Ezekiel 16 testifies to this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. God testifies to his prophet Ezekiel, I saw what they did. And what they did was such an abomination to me that it had to be removed. 
And in these two verses, he makes it clear that the sin was pride. But if you read the whole of Ezekiel 16, two things will become evident. The first of which is that their pride had led them to a place where they felt like they could do anything they wanted, which led them into sexual immorality. And lest we start to be prideful and judgmental, the rest of Ezekiel 16, which you should read someday, testifies to the Lord God telling Israel, look at Sodom. You are so much worse than that. You've been so much more unfaithful to me than that. See, we can look at sin and go, sin is bad, it's awful, it's evil. We can come up with ideas of homosexuality and sodomy and go, that's gross, it's, it's wrong. And miss that it was their pride that was leading them into sexual sin. Everywhere in the New Testament that wants to testify against homosexuality testifies primarily about sexual sin first. It's the broader category that could be put in several ways, whether that's sex out of wedlock, whether that's involvement in pornography, whether that's any number of things that is not God's idea for sexuality for people. Their pride led them to believe that sexual sin was tolerable. And so, taking Genesis 19 and Ezekiel 16 and you put them together, it's blatantly obvious that sexual sin was not only present, but that it was abounding. And it was abounding in such a way that God said it was an abomination that had to be removed. The story continues with the angels pulling Lot into the house, blinding the men. The angels instructs Lot to take his whole family out of town, and they don't all heed his directions. In fact, we find his son-in-laws think it's a joke, so they stay in town. So Abraham, or excuse me, Lot, his wife and his two daughters flee, verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. Friends, this is mercy. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and he brought him out and set him outside the city. Verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor, the city they escaped to. Then the Lord God rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. The rest of 19 continues. There are two other stories to be shared. There's a Lot's wife turning and looking back. And you should know, because this is my like two sentences I'll give you about it, that the idea of her looking back isn't just that she glanced, it's that she glanced longingly. She glanced wantingly. 
That's what she desired. Final story shows us the downfall of Lot's family. It's worse than what I've given you here. As they themselves walk into sexual immorality and ultimately away from the promises of God, we see, assumably from the text, that Lot was the only one in his family that believed. So what we have here in Genesis 18, 19, in a lot of ways, is to turn back to some of the messages we had in Genesis 3 through 11. That despite his mercy and despite his grace, God will still hold the wicked accountable. That God will still judge. Because we can start to see a God who is merciful, a God who is graceful, and mercy and grace and mercy and grace and mercy and grace. And we can be fooled into believing that all he is is mercy and grace. And thus, we can do anything we want with complete impunity. And God says, no. So what do we do with this passage? I'll take you to the New Testament. Two things. First, I'll give you the words of Jesus from Luke 17. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. For they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one door to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, forecasting that Jesus Christ would go to the cross to die on behalf of our sins. Just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. He's talking about his return. They were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. They were on social media. They were watching Netflix. They were fishing. They were doing all kinds of things, God says. But on the day when Lot came out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 31. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let, him, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. For, for whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. In Jesus Christ, there is absolutely mercy and grace. And in Jesus Christ, there is a reality of judgment that he, Jesus, wanted to make sure that not only the disciples knew, but the crowds knew. In fact, in Luke 17, he's talking to his disciples. He's telling them, warn the people. See, some of us are going to get distracted into thinking that life's all about me. It's about me being happy. It's about me feeling good. It's about me accomplishing what I want to do. And 
We'll wander away slowly like a sheep, nibbling grass here and here and here and here. We'll wander away from our master. And on that day, we won't even see it coming. And we won't be in his flock. Jesus points back to Noah. He points to Sodom and he points to Lot's wife as a warning. Consider these words of Paul in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul pushes that out to say, rather than merely living for yourselves, rather than living in sin, understand the gospel. And understand that the the gospel declares to us that when we've turned to Jesus Christ, when we've believed in Jesus Christ, when we've given Jesus Christ our full allegiance, when we're baptized into him, when we've baptized into his death, we've turned to him with our sin. Jesus, forgive me for my sins. That we identify with him in his death and we identify with him in his resurrection. We are raised into a new life. So if you're here with us this morning and you've never believed in Jesus, might I appeal to you that the day of judgment is a real day? And might I appeal to you that today is the day of salvation? For it's easy to walk through the motions and to show up in Christian culture day in and day out and never really believe and trust and give yourself over to Christ. We're to heed that warning. And friends, if you have believed, in addition to the warnings of Genesis 18 and 19, the warnings that Jesus pointed us back to, Peter the disciple would write this to you in Second Peter 2. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept into the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is is going to happen to the ungodly. I mean, Peter points to judgment too, doesn't he? But listen to this. Cling to this. And if he rescued Lot. Listen to the context of Lot. Because he's not going to paint Lot in the best picture greatly distressed by the sensual sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteousness soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He points to a picture of a man who lives in an overtly sexual culture who is tormented by it. 
And if he rescued Lot, then, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Friends, that's mercy. That's grace. What God intends to encourage you with, to build you up with, is not merely that we're to be warned, but we're to be reminded of His mercy. For when the flood waters rose, God took those who belonged to Him and He shut them into the ark. Why? Because He wanted to save them. And when Sodom and Gomorrah was to be burned to the ground, He sent His angels to bring them out. Why? Because He wanted to save them. And when God the Father saw you in the muck and mire of your sin, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to the cross. Why? Because He wanted to save you. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And He did so through His Son, Jesus. And that's both an eternal statement and it's a temporary statement. Which is to say, if you sit at that precipice of sin, sin is knocking at your door, it's creeping up behind you, and you don't know what to do, God knows how to rescue the godly. Friends, you are free in Christ not to give in. That God has empowered you through the Holy Spirit to turn your back from sin, to turn away, to go a different direction. And if you don't believe me, it's probably like 190 of us here. Call one of them. That, that's why we're here. That's why the church of the internet's stupid. You, you can't, you don't get to get gathered together on the internet like, hey, that's my buddy, that's my pal, when he's with me, he'll be with me. No, he won't. When you go through temptation, look around. I mean, literally, look around. God has provided the body of Christ to be here for you. That you, when God knows how to rescue the godly, stick your nose in his word. If you can't do that, call somebody. Say, I'm in. I'm struggling. I'm about to give in to sin. Would you help me? As you walk through the scriptures, Old Testament and New, the reality that God is a judge is an unmistakable fact. The reality that God is a merciful judge is an unmistakable fact. And the fact that God loves his people enough to pursue them and save them despite them is an unmistakable fact. And friends, we could preach a whole sermon on Lot's wife turning back longingly. And we could preach a whole sermon on the story between Lot's daughters and him, and that's real weird, we're not going to get into that. But you've got to understand that there's an impact of living in a sexualized culture that if we don't do anything about and we just live in and follow, it's going to impact us. I'll push the button. You know how many Christians I know who blog, write about, tweet about, and comment about how great Game of Thrones was? Do we not understand that was pornographic? I'm appalled. Really, it has hurt my soul 
the number of people like, oh, did you see the new one? so great. Brothers and sisters, do we not understand the impact that's going to have on us? Or are we so full of pride we think we can do anything and get away with it? Don't be so full of yourselves. That's the sin of Sodom. That they were so prideful they could get away with anything. The Lord knows how to rescue the godlies from trials. Turn to Jesus and he will save you. Turn to Jesus and he will rescue you. Let me pray for us. Oh, great God of heaven. Father, you sought out Abraham, a man who did not know you, a man who was not seeking you, a man who was worshiping false gods, a man who was neck deep and maybe deeper in sin. And Father, you called him to yourself and you asked him to believe. You asked him to follow you. And he did. Father, if we walk out that story, he keeps making mistakes. He keeps falling on his face. He keeps not trusting you. And yet, God, you keep your promise to him over and over and over again. You keep restoring him and blessing him. Father, providing for him amazingly. Just like you've done for me. Just like you've done for all of those who believed in the name of Christ. Father, when we come to passages like this, we're to know and see and understand that judgment's real. Father, we live in a world that wants to completely deny that. We live in a world that says, do what you want, do what feels good. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to be full. God wants you to be the fullest you possible. Father, we live in a world of lies that are just distracting us, that are filling us and filling our minds with thoughts and ideas that are all based on us. Father, would you open our eyes to the truth of Jesus that we would turn to him for salvation, we turn to him for our justification, we turn to him for our sanctification, that we would know and see that it is the Lord God who rescues us from trials. And Father, would you peel back the layers of sin in our life? Father, one peel at a time to know and to see the impact that sin is going to have on us, that it's decaying, that it's leading us down the wrong path. Father, would you call us away from that and point us to your son, Jesus? the author and the perfecter of our faith. The one who's sanctifying those who've already been perfected. The one who went to the cross on our behalf. It's in his name we pray. Amen.